Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 170. In this episode, we're talking about becoming the baptized body with Dr. Sarah Jean Barton. Dr. Sarah Jean Barton is Assistant Professor of Occupational Therapy and Theological Ethics at Duke Divinity School and the author of Becoming the Baptized Body, Disability and the Practice of Christian Community, published by Baylor University Press. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Stephanie K. Judd, Reverend Daniel Parham, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So in this penultimate episode of our series on disability and theology, we are joined by Dr. Sarah Jean Barton, who combines her research on theological ethics and her personal practice of occupational therapy for a rich and wonderful conversation on baptism and the central ritual of Christian baptism and what it tells us about community and and our responsibility as baptized Christians in relation to disability. This was such an enlightening conversation. Uh, Steph and Daniel, what were some of the takeaways that you both had from our conversation with Dr. Barton? I think that um, Dr. Barton's work is a really significant contribution to this conversation, to how disability can really enliven Christian practice. I love the way that she talks about kind of the baptismal hermeneutic and the way that um, these show up, the ways that we understand ecclesial imagination, what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be a disciple, and her, her thoughts on on ways that in in the ways that we organize our communities that we can be the full body of Christ. I think I found it a really energizing conversation. I'm really grateful for her work. The beauty of Dr. Barden's research is it, I think it, it examines the true question of what we mean when we're fully baptized into the body. And uh, I think the body language in of itself convicts us, right? Because Paul tells us we, we are a sum of all parts. And if we exclude some, we actually have undermined uh, in some ways, the beauty of what it is to be the fullest body, and baptism is at the crux of that. Uh, to to say that we recognize that you are invited into the fullest body, right? And even though they already are truly invited, the recognition of that I think makes us examine um, what we're missing out on by being alongside our brothers and sisters and learning and receiving and, and receiving the gift and the blessing that is them. Uh, and so uh, there's there's this beauty of examining that, it's convicting and then also empowers us uh, to think more robustly about uh, how our churches operate within our traditions, within our ordinances uh, that really examine what the body is meant for uh, in relationship to our brothers and sisters who struggle with exclusion because of a disability that, that God recognizes, seizes, sees, and uh, and invites into the space that is the church. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Sarah Jean Barton. Dr. Barton, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for the invite. It's great to be with you all. So we're really excited to talk about your book, Becoming the Baptized Body, published by Baylor University Press. 
we we'd love to to uh, dig into your arguments, your thesis, and what you're proposing for the church. Uh, but we thought as a way to kind of open this conversation, could you tell us a little bit about what led you into this space of disability and theology? Sure. That's a great question that goes back a long time before the book was even kind of a thought or a project. Um, so I uh, grew up on the west coast of the United States um, in the Seattle, Washington area. And a lot of the work that I did as a high schooler and a college student was around caregiving for children with really significant medical needs and disabilities. And so I kind of got exposed to this world of disability and disability community. And something that I noticed amongst all the families that I was interacting with as a babysitter, as a caregiver, as a nanny, was that many of them had previously been extremely involved in their communities of faith, be it their synagogue or a local church or another kind of faith-based organization. But once they had a child with a disability or once they um, kind of were introduced into this disability community, like their child might have had an acquired disability, they were excluded from these faith communities or they experienced all these new barriers and all these questions from people. Your child doesn't understand what it means to be a member of this community. We don't have a space for you anymore. Your child's too disruptive. Um, don't you think another community would be a better fit for you? And I also noticed, this is maybe disclosing my age a little bit, but when I was growing up, like we used to hang out at the mall all the time. And I never saw children or adolescents with disabilities like hanging out at the mall after school. And I just started thinking like, why is this the case? Why are people with disabilities, families who either have parents or uh, siblings or children or other folks who are disabled, why aren't they showing up in these public spaces? Um, and this was a question that really concerned me and started kind of keeping me up at night. Um, after kind of my work in caregiving and working with these families, I went to graduate school to become an occupational therapist. And in the process of becoming a clinician and a practitioner, I had you know, a, the amazing opportunity to learn more about disability studies and kind of get immersed in this theoretical world, but also this very concrete on the ground activist work of being with the disability community and advocating for learning with and alongside disabled folks. That was in Boston, Massachusetts, where I went to occupational therapy school, but then kind of continuing from there as I continued to move around, have new jobs, and then eventually moving to Duke and starting some theological education. So these questions of uh, where are folks with disabilities in the public sphere, and particularly in faith communities, continue to inform my work as an OT. And the questions didn't go away. As I started to work with clients and patients as an occupational therapist, I heard more stories of people being kicked out of faith communities and really struggling with questions of, did God cause my disability? What does it mean to be a disabled Christian? What does it mean to live with this impairment that is disadvantaging me from getting a job, from being the kind of parent I want to be, from being the kind of human being I want to be? And I didn't have a good answer. I felt like I could sit with folks. I still don't know if I have good answers today, 
But these were questions that stuck with me. So I went to theological education and brought these set of questions with me and something amazing um, that I felt so grateful uh, to Duke and the folks there for allowing me to do and just really cultivating and supporting me in was that I continued to work as an OT and I brought these questions from patients and families and folks I was working with and who were teaching me so much about uh, the community in Durham, North Carolina, about the barriers and supports that they had to living their daily life, which is what I've really concerned about as an OT. I care about people having access to and participation in the things that are meaningful that they need to do and they want to do in their daily lives. And I brought these questions from the clinic into my studies at Duke and then thought about things and wrestled with things and lived out things I was learning in my theological education in the context of the clinic. So it's kind of always this back and forth. And um, the book, which uh, is a project that comes out of my dissertation, was actually kind of rooted in stories. Um, and one particular story I tell in the book from patients I worked with as an occupational therapist um, and their stories of, of children with disabilities um, being denied access to faith communities, and in particular, um, a baptismal denial, uh, which really stuck with me. And so um, I'll say one more thing about my connection is just kind of my own experience also in graduate school at Duke, being diagnosed with an autoimmune condition and coming into my own identity and sense of what it means to be a disabled Christian and to live with impairments and chronic health issues that impact every part of my life from my thinking to how much sleep and rest I need to how much dependence I have on others and my institutions that I'm a part of. So I think grappling with my own limits too and um, navigating my sense of call and vocation as someone with chronic health conditions and disabilities and taking that on more as an identity also really shaped kind of the questions that I brought to my theological studies and uh, made it make sense, I guess, to kind of pursue these questions of disability. Sarah, thank you so much for um, sketching that out for us. And one of the things that I really appreciated in, in your book was the way that you explained your approach to your research. And particularly, with, I'd, love, I'd love to hear from you more about the way you approached methodology um, in, in particularly in the context of, as you described, the, the challenges that um, the, the, the bent towards abstraction that theologi theological um, um, research often presents. I'd love to hear from you about the, how would you describe, um, I think at one point you describe it as an ethnographic turn in the way that you approach your research. Could you unpack that a bit for us? Sure. Thanks, Steph. That's a, that's a great question. So I was influenced by my training at Duke and thinking about what does it mean to do theology out of the sight of a wound, um, which of course is not my original idea, um, pulling on my teachers like Willie Jennings um, and Mary Fulkerson, who've written extensively and done the work for, for many years about what does it mean that our theologies might flow from the wounds that we experience in the communities we're a part of are experiencing the wounds that don't go away, the questions that keep us up at night. And I think one way that many theologians and Christian ethicists over the past 
really two decades almost now have have chosen to navigate that is diving into the lived experiences of faith communities and not only taking up concrete realities and Christian practices, but actually looking at very, very particular Christians, their lives of discipleship in very, very particular communities and asking questions like, what is the triune God up to here? What are the pressing wounds that this community has lived with and continues to try to be faithful in the midst of? Um, for, for me, as someone who had research training before, long before I ever got into theology, it was really appealing to me to approach theology, not only from kind of a historical point of view or what we might think of as a more kind of uh, traditional, like constructive theological point of view, but to really robustly think about what does it mean to um, take up a social science methodology and have that be integrated all the way down. So part of my method, uh, which I have to say is is imperfect, I don't think it's a perfect example of a theological ethnography, but a lot of doing ethnography and doing qualitative research is improvisation and um, trying to be honest and self-reflexive along the way, uh, trying to be prayerful and faithful along the way, uh, but also rigorous. And, and part of that for me, particularly working primarily with folks with intellectual disabilities, was to make sure that my method was inclusive and was pulling on best practices of doing research in collaboration with, not research on, but research in collaboration with and partnership with people with disabilities uh, who include people who have different ways of processing information. So I really prioritized kind of inclusive practices in my research. We had breaks and in interviews, a lot of visual aids, a lot of um, kind of more expansive ways of being together and doing participant observation. So not just sitting down for an interview for 60 minutes one day, thanking them and then moving on, but having relationships and conversations that lasted over months and included a lot of visiting, included a lot of sitting in silence, of worshiping together, of just being in spaces together that were comfortable for my participants. And I think another part of the ethnographic turn in what qualitative researchers who are also theologians and ethicists are really working on is coming to questions of discipleship, of theology, of what it means to follow Jesus, and maybe having some hunches about conclusions, but being open to what the spirit is doing in a certain context or community and being open to what the lived experience of, of particular people looks like and where that drives us to next. What kind of new questions or perspectives does that open up? So I had a lot of great, well, what I thought at the time were like these great ideas about baptism and how I could write this awesome you know, dissertation. And then my research participants kind of showed me these categories of inquiry and opened up for me these new questions that I hadn't thought about. Questions around participation and community. I had been really interested in thinking about bodies, and I certainly talk a lot about bodies in the book, but for my research participants, it was much more important to talk, for example, about Jesus's baptism in the Bible. This was a huge theme that kind of crossed across different folks I interviewed, different people I worshiped with, people with intellectual disabilities, support people, family people, pastors, 
people from Baptist and Pentecostal context, people from Lutheran and Episcopal context. And I thought, okay, there's something here. And I think part of the ethnographic turn is releasing a little bit of that control over the constructive theological work that I had hunches about and following down these pathways that my research partners opened up and that were central to their experiences of Christian discipleship, Christian identity, being baptized and what that meant to them. So Dr. Barton, uh, it, it's it's just a fascinating project overall to sit with and uh, advocate alongside. And um, I think you talked about the ec ecumenical elements and the theological perspectives and grid works. Uh, and, I, and I know kind of two, two elements, I think in kind of Christian discourse around disability is the role of disability tied to sin and the, the difficulties in navigating that because there's assumptions read into the scriptures that uh, disability was a result of sin uh, and to what degree, right, uh, the, the fallenness of man or the specificity of one individual's specific sinful acts. And so I imagine to my question is the denial of community, uh, how much of that did you see in your uh, in your research was tied to a certain view of sin in relationship to disability and, 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 and how was that articulated across different theological perspectives? That's a great question. Um, I think I was surprised how little kind of questions of sin came up. I was actually surprised at how many positive stories I heard throughout my interviews and doing the work of participant observation and worshiping with people because the way kind of into these questions was through these heartbreaking awful stories of baptismal denial and of people being asked to leave faith communities and people being just dehumanized um, on the basis of a diagnosis or a disability or what someone perceived to be something that was incompatible with christian discipleship in someone's body or mind and so I was actually quite surprised that most folks I was talking to had really positive experiences in their church communities. Although I suppose if they were willing to participate in this research, they were active in a, in a faith community that affirmed their baptismal identity. Um, and I think it's also an interesting, the question of sin is interesting because sin of course is, connected in many Christian traditions with baptism, baptism for the forgiveness of sins, as we hear about in our creed, um, or one of the main Christian creeds. And so I think when we were talking about sin uh, in the course of, of coming up with, with the material for the book and exploring people's theological perspectives for the book, folks talked about sin in connection to Jesus in the Gospels and Jesus's own baptism as this sign and symbol of Jesus's connection to us and um, forgiveness and a call to repentance from sin. Uh, people talked about um, at times uh, baptism and the acceptance of all Christians and the support of all Christians in their baptismal ministries and vocations as a way to repent of sins of ableism, as a way to repent of sins in their previous life as a faith community that may have unintentionally or intentionally excluded people with disabilities. 
Um, but there wasn't um, kind of a, a thread, at least with the research participants, of a, a big grappling with um, kind of sin as the cause of disability. And I find that really interesting. And I think maybe part of that is because in this project, we were thinking about a Christian practice. And this is a whole nother conversation. Like, I don't think Christian practices are exempt from sin uh, at all. They are characteristically deformed as Lorne Winner, um, my colleague and friend would, would remind us really quickly. Um, but I think when we shift away from kind of these more common frameworks in disability theology, things like thinking about inclusion or friendship or God's image, and we start asking the questions of like, what are these basic components of the Christian life? What are these basic practices that make sense that are the grammar of what it means to be a Christian disciple? They kind of shift some of those conversations away from like, oh, well, we need we need to uh, have this uh, big conversation about sin and the importance of the Imago Dei because if we don't, then like there's no way that we can imagine disabled Christians as full disciples. Um, but when we come at it from Christian practices, at least this is part of my argument in the book, I think people kind of uh, are disarmed and like forget these assumptions and these imaginations that are kind of shaped uh, about how they think about disability. Like disability is undesirable. It must be connected with sin. Well, what do you think about what happens when someone's baptized? Do you think the Holy Spirit, you know, empowers them for ministry? Oh, of course. Okay, so what does that mean for people with disabilities in the church? Oh my gosh, I've never thought about it that way. And so I think uh, thinking about practices or having a different way into these conversations about disability can often kind of disarm and reveal what our imagination about disability has been and maybe kind of like do that work of deconstruction. It doesn't need to be me as a theologian, a theological ethicist coming in and giving these churches like a lecture about how theologically it's like untenable to think about this connection. That's not really what's happening in the biblical text and, you know, have all my PowerPoint slides and a big lecture about it. I'm sure I'll do that. I'll do that for my students at Duke maybe if they're really interested in this question. But I think coming at it through a different lens makes folks realize like, oh, of course, I affirm that the Holy Spirit is at work in all people. I affirm that like our baptismal identity like somehow is carried forth through the body of Christ, through all people, through the sinful body of Christ, as we all struggle in the body of sin, as St. Paul says, as something that communally affects us and also individually affects us. Um, but that there's not kind of this disability sin connection that becomes so important or prominent when we're shifting kind of the questions we're asking. So, so you've mentioned baptismal denial uh, a handful of times. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the the rationale behind that, as would be articulated in certain ecclesial contexts, and also the the problems with it that you that you identify with that way of thinking about baptism and who gets to participate, et cetera. Yeah, so I can talk about two different kinds of baptismal denial, um, because I think at the beginning of this project, it would be very easy for me as someone 
in the Episcopal Church. So I'm an Episcopalian. Um, so I come from a Pado Baptist context, which essentially means that in my church tradition, uh, priests baptize, you know, babies, um, infants, young children. Uh, the Episcopal Church also celebrates baptism of adults, which is kind of baptized across the lifespan. Uh, in comparison to credo baptism traditions, which uh, for the most part will ask for um, an age of accountability, some kind of confession, um, some kind of later stage baptism uh, and a demonstration of maturity and Christian discipleship and commitment. So that uh, typically excludes infants and small children from, from the practice, from the ordinance uh, of baptism. And so the first kind of baptismal denial that I saw in the lives of patients I worked with, clients I worked with as an occupational therapist, were folks with intellectual disabilities, be they children or adolescents or adults, and clergy saying, you don't really understand what it means to follow Jesus, or you can't articulate what it means to follow Jesus or you are a non-speaking person. And so how would you give a testimony when our church requires a testimony for the ordinance of baptism? Um, and they would deny baptism on this basis of someone being a non-speaker or someone not having the requisite um, knowledge or ability to confess or testify. And many of these church traditions would say, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter to God. It's a symbol. It's it's okay um, that you cannot be baptized. I think other traditions, while they may baptize people with disabilities um, as young children, such as my tradition in the Episcopal Church, I see a different kind of parallel kind of baptismal denial going on. And that is the denial that occurs when someone grows up and they have a congenital disability and the church baptized them as an infant and supported them, maybe through preschool, elementary school, and then they're going into middle school and all of a sudden they're a little bit more disruptive or they're speaking during church at a time when people typically don't speak or they're asking questions that make the adults at church uncomfortable or their peers uncomfortable and people say i think it's time for you to find a new church or there's a committee convened because there's a quote-unquote problem person now that's in the church and to me that is just as serious of a denial of baptism um, than than traditions that that don't go forth with the ordinance or the sacrament from the beginning because in all services of Christian baptism, or nearly all services of baptism, the community is taking part in God's work of calling this person into Jesus's body and marking them as Christ's own forever, as we say in my tradition. And the community promises to uphold this person in their discipleship and in their faith. And they promise that them that they are an indispensable member of Jesus's body. And so when troubles come, when they're an adult, when they're a middle schooler, when they're a preschooler, and suddenly churches say, we don't know how to live with a disabled member 
And our solution, again, big air quotes, our solution to this problem or to this person is to ask them to leave, is to say, your needs are too high, your needs can't be taken care of in this community. I see that as a really serious denial of baptismal responsibility to those who have an equal share in Jesus's body with us. So I always, I like to, I like to talk about these two different kinds of baptismal denial because I don't think it's just a matter of which kind of baptismal theology your church subscribes to. I actually think it's a really pressing question for folks who baptize people all across the lifespan. Yeah, and I I appreciate the way that in your book you talk about you adopt this kind of um, baptismal hermeneutic in saying that, um, you know, these theologies and practices that in church communities we adopt around baptism actually say speak volumes about what we believe about Christian identity and Christian discipleship. In those examples where baptismal denial takes place in those contexts, what did you find about what what was upstream in in the in the waters of that community, the things that they believed about Christian identity and discipleship that led to those not necessarily thought through um, actions, but what what led to that in your view? I think a couple things stick out to me as leading to a denial of baptism kind of as a conclusion. And I'll just say as a side note, or not as a side note, I'll just say that through the process of this research, I had really interesting conversations with people who started to say, we're going to do things differently, or we're never going to think about baptism the same. And that wasn't something that I set out to do. I was actually quite careful to guard my own identity to a certain extent um, and not make this research project about me because it's not about me. Um, I mean, I'm also a baptized Christian, but (laughs) that's kind of about it. I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing stories from other baptized Christians. But I think the process of just kind of asking these questions and noticing like, oh, I noticed that this person isn't baptized. Can you talk about that more? Um, That led to not in the case of my research, but in some stories that I heard from other people, people asking that question actually eventually led churches into these discernments around why don't we baptize folks with intellectual disabilities? And then ended up folks with intellectual disabilities were baptized because um, the church the church slowed down i think one thing that certainly plagues my life and the lives of many christians and faith communities although i hate to say it is a desire for control um, and a desire and to maintain the status quo so resistance of something that seems like we don't know what's going to happen and how God's going to show up if we do this differently. We need to cling to this tradition because our membership is falling and we've, we're living through COVID and this is just really hard to hang together as Jesus's body and as the church. And when we're kind of in that scarcity or control mindset, it seems, at least to me, um, and maybe y'all are much more open-handed about things. But for me, it's really hard to do things differently 
or to have kind of standard practices or imaginations about what it means to be baptized, about what it means to follow Jesus challenged. And so I think, you know, people's lives unfortunately become like sites of control for church leaders and become less important than upholding traditions that are kind of unchallenged and uncriticized. Uh, I think, of course, tradition is really important, um, but it's also important that to acknowledge that the spirit works through tradition and traditions are living things that we engage with as Jesus's body, uh, as living human beings in this world. So I think one thing is kind of this narrowing of imagination that tends to happen in churches with all kinds of groups of human beings who are together. And that is one thing that's upstream. Someone was taught something about disability, like y'all talked about with John Swinton in the intro episode. You know, people think that disability is something wrong with an individual person. It's undesirable. It's something that needs to be fixed. And therefore, why would we um, do anything that seems to celebrate someone's disability identity? like baptism saying this person is equally a child of God and we're gonna like celebrate who they are, including their disability identity. That doesn't fit in a narrow imagination that's really shaped by a medical view of disability. So I think that's kind of behind some of these practices of baptismal denial. And I think it's just, it's scary. People don't talk about disability in church and if we have never talked about disability in church and the only thing we've heard is like from the medical establishment or doctors or this really tragic story that we heard, um, where is the space to imagine disabled joy and disabled discipleship and disabled Christian life that is rich and filled with complexity, just like non-disabled Christian life is filled with complexity. Um, and kind of an unwillingness to sit with cognitive dissonance, to sit with complexity. And so I think that can be a really scary place for faith communities. And they think, well, if we change our baptismal practices, or if we change the way that we think about what it means to live out discipleship, and that somehow expands to include disability, what are people gonna think about us? Are we gonna lose our theological footing? Are we going to lose our status in our denomination or our core kind of theological convictions? And that's really scary for a lot of, of people. So I think kind of these fears, um, these desires for control and these narrowings of our imagination that have come not only through, unfortunately, things like the medical establishment and kind of social milieus that we're in, but unfortunately have also come through the church, uh, like we were talking about with this sin disability connection, those can really stifle uh, church communities and their practices. I think it's um, the complexity, I would say it's sadly enlightening <laughs> that that we uh, struggle in our, our faith practices and in, in recognizing uh, the beauty of souls who walk through disabilities uh and to think that um one will be denied that which is uh commanded by christ himself uh it's it's com complex in and only i could describe it like an angry way <laughs> that, that one will be denied such such a right um 
talking talking from the traditional standpoint and then leading down to some of the qualitative moments that you had with individuals potentially who were denied baptism but could you share about the kind of the the theological psychological lens that one has to work through when when they see that they're denied something that is so core and fundamental to the ordinance of the church and what has been shared in those moments and if if there's been any thematic like qualitative um stances that 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 our brothers and sisters have shared yeah there i mean there's so many individual stories but there's definitely themes that are woven through the book and also some practices that i think sustained folks who encountered not just exclusion around sacramental practices and ordinances like baptism but just straight up exclusion from churches in general and their schools and other community places um the church is not the only place where disabled people face discrimination and face exclusion this is um, a society-wide and a community kind of wide issue and so um, hopefully our churches as many faith communities come to grapple more with questions of disability and thinking like a lot more complexly and more richly about what it means to be disabled and be a disciple of Jesus, the church can be a place where um, a different kind of future and a different kind of life together between disabled and non-disabled people is witnessed too. I think something that really sustains folks who have been in the process of honestly healing and reconciliation with church communities after experiencing exclusion, whether through baptismal denial or like in a very extended period of like, we'll see if your family will fit into our community or if this is going to work out or we're going to like have you around for a few years before we decide if we want to baptize you. But something that really has sustained folks through that or been healing to them in a new faith community has been a sense of we need you here. Um, and this kind of picks up on a key theme in disability theology, which is the, the notion of belonging. So it's not just about including people in a room or including people in a special disability ministry that a church might have, but it's saying, no, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. You are called by Jesus. You have a vocation. And our church is the kind of place that wants to take the time and be with you and listen to what that vocation might be. And that's not just for disabled Christians. These are the kind of communities that do that slow work of discernment and of paying attention to the Spirit's work in the lives of all of those in a community. And I will say I have been a part of a church community who does this very well. And it is not just kind of sparkly unicorn roses all the time. It's discerning what the spirits call and gifts are in the life of someone who you really can't stand. And you're really happy when you show up on a Sunday morning and they're not in church. And usually for me, that's honestly a whole bunch of other non-disabled people. I'm like, phew, they're not here. But the communities that have been healing and have often been places where disabled participants and co-researchers that I worked with in the book project have found healing and have found belonging are these communities where they're not tokenized, they're not really 
communities that have like a specialized disability ministry. They're churches where people are committed to doing the patient and difficult work of showing up and asking, how is God at work in this person's life? What are we missing when this person is gone? And how is God calling us to grow as a community within our tradition, within our denomination, within our particular local context to enable this person for ministry? And I think that's beautiful and incredibly um, humbling to be a part of these conversations and to witness this happening in communities and convicting, because I think we can all be invited into greater discernment with brothers and sisters in Christ who are baptized into Jesus's body or who are desiring baptism into Jesus's body and um, and turn away from, oh, I hope they don't show up at church because they're kind of disruptive or they rub me the wrong way or I find them very annoying <laughs> and uh, taking the time to, to understand what God is up to. I think in terms of kind of practices that have been nourishing or um, supportive for people who've experienced exclusion. I talk about this at the towards the end of the book. They're kind of baptismally themed. Um, but one of them is is baptismal testimony. So it's kind of the telling of these community discernments, the telling out of what God has been up to in someone's life. One of the lay members who I interviewed for the book uh, was had just been really convicted in her own church's life about how the church celebrated what she called cultural successes. So she was describing something that was very familiar to me, which is, you know, the church celebrating marriages and graduations and job promotions and people getting scholarships. And I think that's great. Like, I want to celebrate those things in my life and in the lives of others that are a part of the church. But she was very convicted because she thought about this in the life of her church, which had many disabled members, and recognized that the disabled members did not have these same kind of cultural successes that she was seeing amongst non-disabled church members, particularly youth and young adults. And so she started to think, what would it look like for a church to celebrate something else or center something else, maybe not in replacement of cultural successes, but in addition to it. And so I think about many credo Baptist contexts where people give a testimony before they are baptized. What would that look like for all different kinds of Christian denominations and traditions and communities to either at the occasion of someone's baptism have the community write a testimony about this person's presence and gifts amongst them and how they've encouraged their discipleship and their knowledge of the living God and their love of the triune God. What it would look like to have that kind of written together as a community and proclaimed and celebrated in the bulletin or as part of the service or the liturgy or afterwards. And what would it look like to also do that same kind of thing, maybe on an annual basis so on the anniversary of someone's baptism or even on someone's birthday. And again, not having this just be something that is for disabled people in the church, but something that we could practice as all Christians, disabled or non-disabled, that might really uh, beautifully highlight our identities in Christ, which is, I think, so central to what it means to be a Christian. 
I mean, the one of the most basic definitions of what baptism is, is you are becoming a Christian <laughs> in baptism. And uh, I think we need reminders of that. We need reminders of that for ourselves to know who we are in Jesus. And we often, because we're human beings, sinful and fallen human beings, we need the reminder that other people are in Christ too. And so this practice of writing testimony um, and of sharing that within faith communities, I think has been incredibly supportive for, for many people that I met through the course of doing research for the book. I think that, yeah, one of the real challenges in in any community that privileges cognition, whether intentionally or unintentionally, is that we kind of default to these assumptions about what it is to um, fully subscribe to um, the kind of the core central um, kind of commitments of a community that bind the community together. Um, and I think that even even um, kind of hearing you you talk about um, those um, what was it like the the testimonies the yeah, even hearing you talking about the the baptismal testimonies um, how, how did that play out for people that don't communicate verbally in in your research yeah so a lot of baptism and a lot of things associated with baptism even though it is like this multi-sensory, really rich Christian practice where we have water and music and we're hearing sermons and songs and hymns. And in some traditions we have oil that you can smell across the room. Baptism often still comes down to a lot of words, whether that's asking people about to be baptized, to confess, to give a, a spoken testimony, or whether it is kind of the words of the baptismal liturgy. And so uh, one way that my participants, particularly non-speaking participants, really cued me into this more vibrant and expansive way of thinking about baptism and what it means to participate in church, what it means to participate in a baptismal liturgy as a person who is non-speaking, are their witnesses to draw attention to the power of the font or the water or encountering Jesus's presence in a way that's not represented in words. So one of my research participants, um, his pseudonym is Bob. Actually, I do actually remember his real name. I was gonna say, I don't remember his real name, but uh, all my participants had pseudonyms. Um, so Bob was a young adult and uh, a part of an Episcopal church. And he is non-speaking, um, but he communicates in a wide diversity of rich and beautiful and expressive ways. And during services of baptismal remembrance, which is a particular liturgy in the Episcopal church, but many churches will, you know, when anyone is baptized, they might invite the congregation or those gathered there to remember their own baptisms. And this doesn't necessarily mean, you know, remember when you were three months old and baptized because people might not be able to remember their own baptisms, but remembering that Jesus was baptized and that this is a practice that binds Christians together, not only in local communities, but across the church and time and space in Christian kind of ecumenical spectrum. This is one of the sources of Christian unity 
Well, it's also one of the sources of Christian disunity, but we can maybe put that aside for now. But it is this deep well of Christian unity. And whenever the priest kind of proclaims this remembrance of baptism and takes some of the baptismal waters from the font and sprinkles them all around the congregation, Bob will stand with his hands raised and to receive these waters of remembrance of of his identity in Jesus and Bob is very solemn and so I actually witnessed this um, because I went to a service of baptismal remembrance at this church and I had also talked to a number of people who were kind of telling me this about Bob like what a witness he was and Bob is like very still and silent and also completely joyful in receiving these waters of baptism that are sprinkled on him by the priest and sprinkled on everyone else there and seeing bob and witnessing kind of his joy and his open receptiveness to this remembering of who he is in jesus not because he's articulating a baptismal theology in front of the whole church and not because he's saying that this is what he's experiencing but because of his embodied joy and receptiveness to this practice of the church, this has really um, opened up and made um, so central and important to this congregation, this practice of baptismal remembrance in a way that people say, if I had not seen Bob like receive this, this liturgy in this way, I would think about this totally differently. Or frankly, I really wouldn't care <laughs> because it's just like more words. And so I think that's one story that's kind of kind of amazing. Um, and thinking again about this practice of testimony, again, we tend to think about testimony as like something I need to write down or something I need to say. And I really was encouraged throughout the research that there is this myth of independence and there's this myth of us being able to do things on our own, whether that's like a baptismal testimony or just like going around in our day to day lives. Like one of the great gifts, I think, of disability theology and the witness of many disabled Christians is to say, oh, my gosh, we are interdependent upon God and upon one another all the way down. And if we think about testimony as just something that's accessible to non speaking people or to people who are literate and who can write that's like that's pretty limiting if we think about testimony as something that we do together and we best do for one another that kind of opens up some new possibilities and so um at one church um which was a, a baptist church that i worked with i think i actually worked with more baptist churches than any other churches in the book which is really really fun for me um but one of these churches, they just had a tradition that people were um, gave a testimony before their baptism. But at this church, no one ever gave their own testimony. It was always a testimony that was written in conjunction with friends and loved ones and family. And then the person about to be baptized never gave it. And so this church had actually baptized quite a few folks with uh, either really limited verbal communication, uh, people who didn't read or who couldn't write. And 
that was, you know, not really something that was extraordinary because this church was used to the community composing um, these testimonies of their discipleship and their gifts and their journey to be a member of the church, to be a part of Jesus's body, to partake in this ordinance of baptism, the symbolic um, ceremony of baptism as they would talk about it. And that was kind of what they did for everyone, disabled or, or non-disabled. And so I think both kind of shifting from more independent or individualized views of what it means to witness or to testify and then also looking at people's bodies and the ways that uh, folks express who they are and how they're experiencing worship before God and paying attention to those ways of experiencing worship and of following Jesus that don't include words, which often might might kind of put the onus on people who who like to speak, and I include myself in this group of people, you know, people who like words might actually have to use words to say, we need to pay attention to this, like, words are so inadequate for this, but our, our brother, our sister, our sibling here has, has something to give us, and, and I'm going to point that way, um, and that's really, you know, that's at the heart of what uh, sacraments are, they are, they are not, words they are practices um that that show us god's grace and that point us in a new way that are a sign and a symbol that are not just meant to be like kind of cool things that we do but are actually transformative and transforming us into the the people that god wants us to be individually and collectively so i also i was really encouraged in the research to be reminded of oh gosh like Baptism isn't about words anyway at the beginning of the story. It's about um, encountering God in embodied, nonverbal or extraverbal or hyperverbal ways. And uh, I think some folks with disabilities, particularly folks who are non-speaking, uh, can really have a prophetic uh, presence in that way of reminding us the insufficiency of words um, and also just, you know, how boring it gets if we're all we're thinking about is just writing or speaking. Yeah. And I love, I love the way that you kind of um, point out that it's so often the case that whether it be theological exploration of disability or um, the way that um, we do life together with people with disability um, can present the opportunity to enliven our Christian practices um, if if we're paying attention, because I think, and I think I, I come from a highly liturgical kind of um, ecclesial background, and I think that one of the, the tensions there is that um, in in liturgy or in these practices, these rhythms, um, are you just going through the motions, or are you expecting encounter with God? And often the things that disrupt what we, you know, the control that we're seeking, or or the kind of um, the habitual ways of doing things that we're used to, those moments of disruption are, are so precious because of the way that they open you up and rupture things in ways that you weren't expecting. Um, something that I wanted to unpack was the way that you kind of situ situate yourself in the landscape of models of disability um, and you talk about kind of the coalitional model 
uh, and the way that that presents an opportunity for this collective reimagining. Could you um, talk a little bit about what you mean by the coalitional model? Yes, happy to talk about that framework for disability. Um, I think in my reading and understanding and studies of different models of disability, I really um, have been formed and draw upon the work of Alison Kafer, who's a disability studies scholar. Um, and she wrote a book a while ago now called Feminist Queer Crip in, in the introduction. She gives actually a really nice kind of overview of traditional models of what disability is. What does it mean to say disability? What does it mean to have a disability identity? And she talks about the medical model, of course, the social model, the minority model. But then she thinks about this coalitional model of disability, which thinks about disability as something that emerges out of relationship and disability as something that's a political identity. So I would say, in other words, like it matters the communities that we belong to, the polis that is oriented toward what the good we're going after is, what the good for each other is, what a good future looks like, what it means to have a good body. And that is so important for how we construct notions of what disability is and what disability identity might be. And something that I really like about this coalitional model is that, um, again, it, it runs this thread of interdependence through it. So people with and without disabilities are in coalition together. It's not non-disabled people calling the shots for people with disabilities. It's not non-disabled Christians forming disability ministries and saying, okay, now disabled people can show up. They can participate in this realm of our church, but nothing else. But it's really building um, God's kingdom together. It's building a future where disability is a vibrant and important and necessary part of human community and diversity together. And uh, so Kaver is not, as far as I understand, a religious scholar, but I've always been really taken by her questions around what is the future that we imagine and what do our beliefs and constructions of disability now enable us to imagine for the future and um, I mean, John Swinton talks about this a lot and talked about it on the an earlier episode of the podcast, but like what we think about disability in the future, whether that's in God's good future, in heaven, in eternity, like that really matters for our practices now. And so I find Kafer's insistence that we always come back to what future are we imagining as people and for me as as christians and as the church gathered together in god's good future but also in the future in like three years um as long as the new creation you know isn't inaugurated <laughs> in the next three years like what does that mean for uh how we ought to kind of grapple with questions of disability and and work together and form coalitions that that seek justice that seek to dismantle ableism that look to point out exclusion and oppression and then do something about it um, that points toward new creation um, which of course is also a baptismal theme i didn't really mean to do that but i i'm really compelled by paul's work in second corinthians 5 there's like a whole chapter in the book about it um about thinking about baptismal identity as this new creation identity in our identities in Jesus as primary, not as erasing racial identity or gender identity or disability identity, 
but as really centering us on this is amazing what God has done in bringing together all of us who carry these uh, really different identities together and essentially sticking us with each other like forever. You can't get out of this, you know, you are in Jesus's body. What are you going to do about it? Um, and I, I love what you're saying stuff about disruption and the importance of disruption for uh, especially folks like those of us who are from more liturgical traditions. Um, but something my research really brought to mind for me was a reflection that I've actually had, you know, for a long time, which is how uh, people will often talk about, you know, folks with disabilities, particularly intellectual disabilities, as being a disruption in a church community, or my life was disrupted by my onset or acquiring of a disability, or this person like unexpectedly showed up in church or unexpectedly showed up in my classroom even. And kind of flipping that on its head and thinking about, no, am I the disruption in the lives of disabled Christians that's coming in with my narrow imagination and my inability to be open to the work of the spirit? And I'm disrupting all that God wants to do in their lives of discipleship and in this community's life. Maybe I am the unexpected guest in this person's you know, testimony and baptismal identity and life story. And I found that to be a really helpful and humbling and difficult <laughs> at times reminder that anytime I'm kind of tempted to think about people's lives or embodiments as a disruption to my preferences or my routine or my theology or my worship, I try and turn that back around and think about myself as that disruption to the work of the spirit or think about myself as an unexpected guest in that person's life or in that community's life. And um, that's been, I've, I'm sure, something that I will continue to think about, but something that's been really transformative in my own work um, in the disability community and in doing this kind of research. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Barton. Uh, just really appreciated what you shared there at the end, especially this emphasis on on new creation. And you know, you didn't mention Galatians three, but it, it was sort of implied, right, that where you know this great baptismal passage where these binaries are no longer operative, right? Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, etc. And able-bodied and and disabled is not one of the binaries, you know, that Paul lists, but it's sim similarly one of these binaries that the identity is not erased, but the value that one has in the body is not predicated upon where you where you land in that in that binary. And just that that emphasis on the new creation identity that we all take on as we are as we are baptized is just beautiful. And really appreciate everything that you shared uh, with us uh, and this this emphasis on baptismal responsibility as well, and the, the church's responsibility as baptized individuals to care for, incorporate, and to co-labor coalitionally alongside all baptized members of the body. It's just a wonderful image and just so appreciate everything that you shared with us. Thanks so much. It's been fun to talk with you all. And always uncover new things to think about, you know, like walking away and being like, oh man, I haven't thought about non nonverbal testimony in a little bit here. I'm going to return to my church next Sunday and think about this in a new way. So 
grateful uh, for the space to, to talk together today. Thank you.